Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Anna Kabeca here with another episode of Couch Talk, our private place to sit and have really candid conversation, guiltlessly, shamelessly, as we dig deep into our human nature and the issues that we face in society today. Today, I have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Mary Wingo, and today we're going to talk about the human stress response as it relates to all of us on a daily, everyday stress level to chronic stress to acute stress, to post-traumatic stress. So our special guest today is really an expert in this area. Coming from Ecuador today, Mary Wingo, who was born in the United States, where she earned her PhD in human stress research from the University of North Texas, emigrated to Ecuador in 2014. She's been living in a new and very different society, which opened her eyes to the unsustainable social, economic, and political costs preventable stress causes in the modern world. So Dr. Mary Wingo's aim is to clearly explain to the public the biological mechanisms behind the stress response, as well as its staggering cost to society. So those of you who have been listening to me for a long time know how impactful stress research and and the consequences of stress are in our hormonal health, in our immune systems, in our mental health and state of well-being, as well as in our relationships. So welcome, Dr. Mary Wango. It's great to have you here with us today. It is great to be here, and thank you for the wonderful warm welcome, Anna. You are very welcome. Tell us about your story, how, well, first of all, how did you end up in Ecuador? How I ended up in Ecuador? Well, I've been um, a, a student and academic of stress for many, many, many years since a young undergraduate. And um, I, I don't know, around, I'd say it's about 12 years now. Um, I, I don't know, I kind of opened my eyes to uh, to the situation that was going on in the U.S. and really in the modernized world in general, but in the U.S. since, you know, that is my native country. And I realized I just, I, I just couldn't take the stress. I could not take the stress from the way that, that society is structured. I was just too sensitive. And um, I realized that, that ultimately I needed to leave my home country um, in order to sort of keep my wits and, uh, you know, keep, uh, you know, good health about me. And so, uh, indeed, that's what I did. I, I wasn't um, intending on writing a book. In fact, I was out of science completely. I was just a small business person. But um, watching um, the situation sort of develop in the U.S. and in Europe, um, you know, uh, there's uh, been an absolute explosion of stress-related disease, and especially um, recently. And since no other researcher uh, or investigator or thought leader had written a comprehensive, um, actionable um, book uh, that, that sort of analyzed, sort of like did a, a, an analysis of what we understand about stress and human adaptation over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Nobody had done this. And I'm looking at what's going on. I'm thinking, okay, this really needs to be done. And, and like I said, I kept waiting for somebody smarter to do it than me, but nobody was doing it. And so I guess, um, you know, again, looking over the, uh, the contemporary literature going over this book, I realized nobody did have a good, comprehensive, um, full-bodied, you know, seeing the forest for the woods type um, perspective on human stress. And I wanted um, to uh, write something that could be understood by everybody. Oh, and it is. It's a great work. So the book that Dr. Mary Wingo wrote, I want my listeners to know it's available in bookstores and Amazon, and it's called The Impact of the Human Stress Response. So it's written in a conversational tone. It's easy to read, and it really brings out the depth of what we deal with in stress and the range of what we deal with in stress. So Dr. Wingo, talk to us a little bit about, you know, describe the, the nature of our stress response. Okay, this is 
Okay, th- th- this is where we're going to get a little bit geeky and we're going to geek great. out a little bit. But but this is this is mind-bending and this is something that um sort of goes beyond the uh, model of, you know, a lot of people understand the importance of, of adrenaline and cortisol, um, you know, within uh, the stress response. So a lot of us know about that, but we really have not known um, the reasons uh, for these reactions uh, until recently. Basically, what, what we want to understand, which has eluded many, many thought leaders uh, in this field for, oh gosh, probably a hundred years or so or more is the actual definition of stress. Um, and there have been attempts. Uh, the father, one of the fathers of medicine, in fact, he's the guy that actually coined stress, Hans Selye. Um, he's basically a, a common factor in every basic um, biology uh, book that there is. Usually uh, uh, his, um, you know, his ideas are, 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 you know, explained within like the first chapter of uh, of almost every um, biological text that there is, and um, he he did he advanced the field tremendously, but he still wasn't able to come up with the definition. Well, after looking at this for a number of years, I was finally able to kind of patch together a definition, and this is what the actual definition of stress is, Anna. Stress is the rate of adjustment that we undergo in order to adapt to a particular environment we happen to find ourselves in in a particular moment, okay? So there's two aspects to the stress response. There's the actual organism, which that, that is us. Um, the, the stress response, of course, applies to every uh, living organism, um, you know, that, uh, that we know. So it's not just humans, but we're going to concentrate on humans. Um, and then we have the environment. Okay, so um, one thing that I take a little bit of issue with, um, although it's not a big issue, is how um, we tend to, uh, you know, the, the stress management, the, the experts that write um, the various manuals and books on stress, they tend to place everything within the lap of the person experiencing stress. But the thing is, is that's only half of it. When you have a real hostile environment, like for instance, if you're um, located in the middle of ground zero, point blank of Fukushima, you can do all the mindfulness meditation that you want, but if your DNA is being blown apart, well, that's very intense chemical stress. And there's just no way to talk to to meditate your way out of something like that. So I wanted to, to, to get, you know, to where I wanted to present this in a way um, people could understand. Now the actual Well, science, that's an, I want to interrupt one second. This is so exciting. Oh, sorry about that. Interrupt you, but I want to make this point so clear because people think, well, I should just think myself out of stress, right? I should think myself out of depression. I can think myself well. Now there's a part to that, right? Or the Where we focus on is key to the recovery, recuperation process and probably to how you've, you've, really well-defined stress as that rate of adjustment, right? So our our mental attitude and approach and direction and focus is going to improve our rate of adjustment or shorten our rate of adjustment, um, if that would be the case. And But yet the environment, the toxicity, the hormonal disruption, the, um, uh, you know, inflammatory response, the physiologic changes that occur as a result of environmental stressors is a huge disruptor, right? A huge factor in delaying this rate of adjustment that I think is something that it's, it's really important because many people and in PTSD, you know, the fact that it's even considered, you know, disabling, which I think is, um, I, I really think it's, it's, disrespectful in a way to the whole process but um just the the idea is that oh we can just snap out of it right just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and snap out of it we have to recognize that there are environmental issues that can impact our stress response and our ability to adapt to whatever stress it is that we're dealing with so i want to thank you for highlighting that 
Oh, absolutely. But it goes on, and, and, and we can get to this a little bit later on another show, but it goes beyond. I mean, it, stuff like in, it, like inequality, like social inequality, which you think is like a bit removed from like the individual um, uh, human experience. But no, I mean, when we see this was another thing. This is another thing people aren't considering the um, the geopolitical um, and economic instability that we have um, in um well, basically all parts of the world, but it's really in bad shape in the U.S. Don't don't forget for a moment that this um, isn't deeply affecting people because when you have social turbulence, social inequality, like clockwork, um, stress-related diseases, disability, and early deaths explode. And, and the cost of stress, especially in the U.S. where we don't have what I would consider a true comprehensive basic health system, um, families are pocketing. I mean, they're directly taking the hit from this. So in my opinion, this is a public health um, crisis that is sort of like the elephant in the room that we knew is an elephant, but we didn't really have the vocabulary to like describe the elephant. This is what this is now. And I haven't gotten to the science part yet. Do you have any questions so far? Do you have any questions? On that part no, before no, I get to the keep going. That's exactly right on. So great points. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Yeah. Because I, I don't want to go over anybody's head, and I don't want to go too fast. Just stop me anytime. Okay. So basically, okay. Now, now th this is this is where it gets really exciting. First off, we need to sort of change our concept of stress. We we understand that it's basically a rate of which we adapt, which we adjust. So there's nothing negative or positive. These are mechanisms. And it's not just the adrenal glands which secrete the um, adrenaline and cortisol. It's not just the fight or flight response. Um, it's not just like, say, a lot of people have heard about the amygdala, which is like the emotional processing center. Or some people have even heard of the hippocampus. Um, you know, some people have heard of that. It's not just one um, uh, mechanism or the other. The stress response is actually the adaptive response. And we evolved uh, with this response in order to adapt to irregular events in the environment. So we have two basic states. Oh, th th this is heavy. You're going to like this. Um, we have two basic states. We, there's two parts of reality, I should say, that we contend with as organisms. You've got the part of reality that's predictable, that's cyclical. You know, the, the sun rises every day, the, you know, the sun sets every day. You know, we have to have our, our daily schedule of meals, you know. I mean, the, the, you know, the seasons, um, you know, various, uh, you know, uh, uh, crop schedules if we're into agriculture, that kind of thing. Okay, one sector of our of our system deals with that type of reality, those type of signals from the environment that are repetitive. Now, that's that 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 part of especially the nervous system, that's parasympathetic response that controls that. Um, that part and, and that it also includes a cascade of, of uh, accessory responses as well. That's the oldest part of our reactive nervous system, okay? That is like the first part that was put into place during evolution. Now, um, very soon after, we developed our adaptive mechanisms, okay? And that includes our stress response. And that, there's a second part of reality, which is the disruptive part of reality. It's the novel part of reality. So we go through our day, our sun rises, we have our typical breakfast. And then like, say, if we want to take an example here in Ecuador, you have the 7.8 Richter scale earthquake, you know, you weren't expecting that. And you need the stress response in order to adapt to that as well as other disruptive elements in your environment um, in order um, to not go into circulatory shock because that is what happens if we um, are unable to, um, mod uh, uh, to mobilize a stress response, we have problems with circulatory cardiovascular shock. 
and that um so is a very very uh, protective mechanism that goes in so so that and we haven't even gotten to really what stress is basically what happens during the adaptive response is our morphology especially the morphology that is under stress assumes temporarily hopefully temporarily a more plastic flexible jelly-like if you want to sort of kind of make this visual um, um, stance state uh, morphology and so um, it, it assumes this type of tra hopefully transitory state uh, in order to reconfigure itself to whatever new environment it happens to be in. So if you're like me and you're way high up in the uh, mountains, very high altitude, much higher than Denver, um, then um, basically everybody is going to go through um, the adaptive response of reconfiguring their cardiopulmonary uh, systems in order to adapt to the thin, thin, very thin oxygen. So it takes a few months of remodeling, just like you would a piece of clay into a new configuration. But that is why we have the adaptive stress response. You, it's not... A negative thing we tend to attach negative connotations it's actually a positive um, mechanism for which we wouldn't even survive the stress of being born if we did not have so basically are, is your tissue assuming a more plastic stance or uh, is it falling on the other end of the uh, adaptive uh, problem scale of being too rigid see we have problems with our our tissues becoming too rigid and not flexible enough and not plastic enough. And then we have problems if we keep ourselves in the stress response too long of becoming, uh, 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 you know, too uh, plastic and losing our structural integrity. So this is where all the diseases come from. This is where the etiology of all pathology starts with. That's the loss of homeostasis. Mm. I think that's, uh, yeah, I'm still, I'm still adapting to the information, <laughs> but what is physiology really, 101, physiology right. 101, that should be the first day of medical school of like say anatomy, physiology of any like say health profession focused class. Um, that should be like literally like the first five minutes. Well, and I think that's key because we're either going to rigidly adhere to a, Right, um, I think just rigidly adhere to the current way of life, or be able to adapt or plastically adapt, to use that term. And yeah. so, when we talk about plasticity, neuroplasticity, right? Being able to have improved neuroplasticity, that ability to create new pathways within our nervous system that are optimally functioning. We're, we're talking all tissues. We're not, we're, yeah, we're de definitely the nervous system. Nervous system it is basically uh, our, our primary organ, stress response organ, but especially the frontal lobes. Those have, the, the frontal lobes have got a tremendous amount of uh, plasticity, but we're, we're talking about every single tissue that we have. From, like you said, adapting to high altitudes or the cardiopulmonary. Uh, to like like gravity. for instance yeah like exactly if you're uh like say if you're just like say for instance an athlete and uh you go through the conditioning i mean we're all familiar with this it's just we didn't have the vocabulary well well what happens your tissue has to remodel itself in order to adapt to the new types of um of a physical conditioning for instance but you can also do it with your mind i mean for instance uh you know um um you know, for me, it took me about 20 years of like literally looking at stress from every aspect that you could look at, you know, whether it's just biological or social or whatever. But again, the neuroplasticity I had to have in my brain in order to really wrap my head around this, well, that, of course, that is part of the stress response. So we can train our brains, we can train basically all parts of our body um, to adapt to whatever environment needs to be adapted to. So we, if we stick to neuroplasticity, like in relation to um, 
post-traumatic stress? Like what improves our stress response? Well, let me, let me first go over um, exactly what post-traumatic stress is because um, there's a lot of shame um, that is associated with this. Um, um, and, and you know what? Um, PTSD and complex PTSD are not that common here in Ecuador. Um, Ecuadorians um, are a pretty evolved society. And one thing they don't do a whole lot of, I'm not saying it's never, is to shock each other and stress each other out. It's, it's, everyone really tries to be calm and, and, you know, tries not to yell at each other and tries to settle things um, on a uh, more civilized tone. So, you know, as far as um, how we in our culture tend to flip out, um, it, it, this is definitely a, there's definitely cultural differences, although the experience of PTSD is universal. And, and what that is, it's just a disorder of extreme stress and demands to adapt. So if we understand that stress is additive, if we understand that um, stress is only meant to be sporadic, Anna, we're not supposed to have this grinding crap every single day. It's supposed to be sporadic. Um, and we use it, and yeah, we might get all worked up, but then we return to baseline. Well, that's not how our society is structured um, anymore. It is a constant grind. It might not necessarily be horrible. It might not necessarily be a bear chasing you in the woods, but when you're talking the grind of multitasking, of traffic, of, of just having being overscheduled, um, of, you know, not having enough time to like, say, cook a proper meal and sit down with your family and form, um, social capital. Um, this right here increases the odds that we're going to have PTSD in an individual. Okay. So, so there's factors that go into how a person gets PTSD. Now we call it disorders of extreme stress. Well, how does this happen? Okay. When a person and when it really gets ugly is when you have repeated extreme stress exposures, which um, is probably more of a problem in our society than even just plain old PTSD. You get complex PTSD. So you get stressors added on top of stressors and that people have a real hard time getting over. And so what happens is, is your frontal lobe, um, which is the brain, part of your brain behind your um, your uh, forehead and behind your eyes um, is your primary stress response organ. Okay. And so, you know, at, at low levels of stress, okay, it, it, it's good. That's what it's used for. We solve our problems. The frontal lobe is what has made humans humans, what's built civilizations. It's, you're able to solve problems. Um, you know, manipulate the environment, you know, you don't have to sit there and freeze, you can build a house, you can, you know, uh, get the hide of an animal and, you know, make a coat, you're able to, you're not having to always change your body to fit the environment. If you got a good frontal lobe, you can change the environment to fit yourself. And so when we're under extreme stress, Okay, the cortisol is so high for so long, it activates actually a second set of receptors in the frontal lobe, which starts to shut down operations. So um, the primary effect is, okay, um, start losing frontal lobe. Um, um, you start losing frontal lobe functioning. You start losing your concentration, your ability to follow through on what you say you're going to do. You know, it gives you ADD, um, the ability to control your emotions. Okay, you can kind of see where this is the root of basically all mental illness, not just PTSD. Okay, all mental illness can come from this same core. Okay, but the PTSD, what happens then is that part of the memory, that's your working memory, and that gets disrupted. And so you lose the ability to function. Okay, this is a common cause of disability. Okay, but then what happens then is that it disrupts circuits in your memory consolidation center called the hippocampus. And what this does is it creates um, your, the, well, it creates the type of memory that you can 
come up with, you can describe with words. It's called declarative memory. So it's putting the narrative, your narrative to your experience. Well, under disorders of extreme stress, the cells that facilitate you being able to put a narrative to your experience, like say bring a narrative to your intense emotions from a really horrible disruptive event, become impaired. And so that's when you get the flashbacks. Flashbacks are nothing but fragments of your emotions that are unable to connect to your verbal centers of your brain. So they're just kind of sort of in a loop all by themselves and they invade your consciousness and cause even more disability and cause um, dissociation because they're so painful, which is another disabling system. So you can see where, you know, you start out with PTSD and if, it, if you don't resolve it, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Yes, so the big thing with PTSD is, is oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just that. want to go through that again so I understand it clearer, too. This is a huge concept. So with, um, you know, complex PTSD, PTSD in general, so we're getting disruption in our memory circuits. circuits. Yes. And so that is disrupting the hippocampus. Yes. And so we have an issues with flashbacks are being caused because we have this issue with the hippocampus and clarative memory, and so we can't put this narrative to experience in its proper, like, targeted, like, putting it away, essentially, correct? I mean, how do you, I'm having trouble verbalizing this. this um, oh, oh, yeah, it's, let me tell you, let me tell you, because this is very, very deep. So, so, okay, the declarative memory is putting, is your ability to access what's going on inside your head verbally. So, you know, so it somehow needs to get processed in, for most of us, our left hemisphere in the uh, Broca's area, you know, and with disruption, and it's also damaged the actual cells of the hippocampus, which process this, it's a type of factory, and it processes this um, because damaged. Um, it actually, the cells actually atrophy and die, but they can also grow back again. So it's, it's not like other parts of the nervous system where it's just permanent damage. You actually have plasticity in this part of the brain. And so you, you do, you, so, so what, how does it feel like to have, to, to have PTSD? Well, it's those, it's those flashbacks. Well, what's the flashbacks? It's these horrific feelings where you go back to wherever you, you know, the horrific um, overwhelming stress happen and you replay it's it's the feeling component of it the horrific feeling that is so horrific you can't even face it you can't even put words to it and that is what causes the damage of PTSD when you can I don't know find a way now there's various ways to do this but when you can find a way to put a cohesive narrative, and, and you can feel safe. You can do this without being in the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, you know, panic response. Then that is when people like literally can turn their lives around very quickly. And you know, it's it's interesting because like I'm totally triggered right now. You know, <laughs> this is because it, I'm sorry. it's up this, no 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 it's okay but I can I can feel it and for people who have had PTSD you may be feeling this too and and so it's just taking a moment to take a deep breath in and just calm you know get calm get back centered you know some of um, sometimes we do tapping or emotional freedom technique yes of, or our mantra, yes. mine is pause, breathe, smile, connect, and just take that deep breath in and, and to reset my nervous system. So I learn through this, like my self-adaptative mechanism to triggers um, is, you know, it, it, we've got to establish some type of self-adaptation mechanism to triggers is kind of compartmentalization is another thing okay I know what I'm feeling I'm going to deal with this at 8 p.m. you know I you know or these thoughts are coming I'm going to deal with it at 8 p.m. so chunking or compartmentalizing the thoughts as they come up those are are those are things that I've used to help with what you're describing here so um, 
clearly and technically the the reality of the flashback, right? But yes. triggers and what's interesting in this mechanism of flashbacks is the broad some sometimes the generalizing effect of other things will trigger you too. Like yeah. um, something that smells the same or looks the same or you know other situations or even people uh, can inadvertently trigger this process again. That's, that's right. That's right. Because um, these uh, uh, emotional fragments, okay, you know, you have to understand your nervous system, you know, you, you know, you know what classical conditioning and operant conditioning is, right? You know, the, like, uh, uh, you know, pa Pavlov's dog, Pavlov's you know, dogs, you ring the bell and, yeah, and, and the dog starts salivating. He doesn't even see the food. He just, you know, associates the bell with, uh, you know, with dinner. Well, um, and also operant conditioning, where it's just a simple, you know, con um, you know, response, uh, you know, uh, stimulus response, you know, like you smell something bad and it makes you nauseous. Well, y your entire nervous system is wired uh, and the way your nervous system is wired to your organ system, uh, various organ systems is, is the same, too. These are conditioned responses. And. Um, the 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 thing that we have to look at is that these are emotional fragments and these fragments need to be put into like an overall story or a narrative because that part of the brain was damaged it's not damaged forever it's plastic you can grow it back you can grow back your hippocampus so it's not like say having a stroke where you wipe out you know your visual centers or your you know your paralyzed on one side it's not that level of brain damage but it is brain damage but it can regrow there is hope but the key is is you don't want to um get a, the the what really affects a lot of people is the dissociative part okay and the dissociative part according to i believe his name is borges is the uh, um is the the vagal um uh, see it's a vagal theory yeah, vagal theory um, um, that he came up with, where you've got two branches of the, the, okay, we have the rest and digest response, and then we have the other half that we talked about a second ago that deals with uh, repetitive aspects called the parasympathetic or the, um, the, you know, we have the fight or flight, then we have the rest and digest. Well, the rest and digest parasympathetic branch of our um, reactive nervous system has got two branches to that. You've got the new branch and you've got a more ancient branch. Well, that ancient branch is what controls dissociation. Okay. That's the freeze response. That's the, um, you know, act like you play dead response. Mm -hmm. And that is what really becomes disabling. So we have to develop a narrative. And when we develop a narrative, a lot of that um, very ancient part of the rest and digest response causing the freeze reaction starts to go away. So again, grounding exercises. Another thing that um, a lot of people um, have utilized, now this is, I'm here you know, in Ecuador, and I'm not in the Amazon, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the mountains. But the Amazon's just right over the hill, uh, right over the hill, if you want to call the Andes the, the hill. Um, and you, you, there's a lot of promise with the jungle medicine, ayahuasca. And there's a number of, of uh, like, say, for instance, um, ex-soldiers um, that have uh, come down, uh, you know, and uh, participated in ayahuasca ceremonies. And they have been able to develop this narrative uh, literally overnight. Um, it gets reset. There's like a hard reset. Um, and it's probably um, facilitated uh, through the, um, the uh, hypothalamus. Particularly, it's probably facilitated through oxytocin. So Absolutely. the key is you, ha you have to yeah. feel safe. You have to feel safe, okay? So you and have to feel like you're bonded connection. to. Yeah. And supported yeah. and safe space that's held in a ritual something to that extent because exactly the the cortisol oxytocin connection disconnection right that whole concept of 
feeling like um, like the dissociative part that you're talking about happening on the neurologic level is also part of our our, our, our social level too. We become disconnected yes. from relationships, burnout from relationships, yes. burnout from the things we love because the act you know one of the activating aspects of PTSD or chronic unremitting chronic stress or high elevated cortisol is shutting down the paraventricular nucleus, which is also regulating oxytocin release. Yes. So we get this yes. low burnout cortisol, low burnout oxytocin um, it, after a long time versus high cortisol, low oxytocin. We also get low cortisol, low oxytocin, which is fascinating to me. And, um, and so you have this burnout and disconnect and loneliness and isolation. And, and I think here all coming together in this dissociative um, phenomenon. Well, yes. And, and see, the oxytocin uh, regarding the paraventricular nucleus. Paraventricular nucleus is very interesting. It's like a switching station, okay? And it's where your higher level thought connect up with your um, automatic or autonomic uh, reactive nervous system, okay? So this is why we have to say we, you have to feel safe, okay? Because with oxytocin, oxytocin is released during bonding or like say when with your, like, like the feelings you have for God or for your mother, the very warm, safe feelings. Well, what that does, that inhibits the sympathetic nervous response. So that inhibits the panic, the pounding heart, you know, and so that is the key for breaking PTSD is to be able to think about the thoughts because you have a narrative without that horrific parasympathetic and then, or sympathetic, and then when the sympathetic gets burnt out because it's only good for so long, that dissociative branch of the parasympathetic kicks in. So th this is the key, the key. So that's why, you know, you can't just yell at someone. This is why the environment's very important. You just can't say, you know, here you are, you're working a very high stress job. Your marriage is in trouble. Um, you know, your boss is threatening to fire you. You know, um, you're not sure if you can make the payments on the house. And to expect someone to recover from PTSD under those type of conditions is impossible. You have to feel very safe. Like you, you know, like you did, like if you're in your mom's arms, your mother's arms, you have to have that kind of mental stance. And that's not really mental at all. That's the oxytocin. And the oxytocin dampens the sympathetic nervous response. So it is absolutely integral. So how in... With that understanding, oxytocin create this safe social network, the safe space, the safe community, which I love doing, and I do that in my online programs, and it just makes a difference, right? A healing phenomenon that you can't reproduce independently or isolated, and it's really beautiful. So here we think, okay, creating this safe space to heal from chronic stress or to improve that stress response, right? The rate of adaptation. So, so um, talk more about that. How, and how does that relate to back to cortisol? Okay. Okay. So, okay. Um, so uh, like, let, let me, let me clarify. You're, you um, are looking for solutions or are we, we need to discuss solutions, correct? Solutions, absolutely. I'm still. I'm going to hang my hat on my PTSD dissociative phenomena right now. <laughs> like, okay, read my mind. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, now, um, well, gosh, our boy, this wonderful conversation has just flown by. I'm going to have to come back again. Um, yeah. One part that I normally discuss um, uh, on uh, other uh, programs, um, such as yours, are there are five major factors um, of stress that cause stress in modernized society. Um, these are not so common in a society like, say, such as Ecuador. This is strictly for our culture. And um, so basically, um, you know, I, I go over these in my book, um, you know, and I try to provide the vocabulary for people to really be able to identify. But one big thing with really overcoming, I mean, like truly managing stress, truly managing, is that like a food diary, like a budget when you're going on a money diet, 
you need to be able to look at these five categories, you know, because otherwise it's just going to be very disorganized and people aren't going to be able to identify what stress is. But look at these five categories and list every single stress that you have in your life, every single one. And it might take a couple weeks to do. You might need to get help from like, say, your significant other or your family because you may not even realize what you're doing. And just just making a list right there and seeing the vast um, a number of items on the list. Oh, well, no wonder why I've got high blood pressure. No wonder why I can't sleep. No wonder why, you know, yeah, um, you know, I, I have PTSD, you know, from an event that came from 25 years ago, even though life has been pretty good, you know, by U.S. standards. Um, why do I still have these horrific triggering? Well, it's because stress is additive, okay? And the more you pile up, okay, the more you stress your adaptive mechanisms, okay, the, the higher the odds are going to be you're going to have a stress-related illness. And that's another thing with PTSD. They also have huge amounts of stress-related illness. If you look at veterans uh, from um, the Vietnam War, oh, my God, the rate of heart disease, diabetes, a pulmonary, I mean, everything that you consider stress-related that has exploded in the last 50, 75 years, just, just look at our typical veteran, um, and you will see right there that this is a very huge liability. And, and it's preventable. I mean, this is preventable. And the prevention's cheap. Um, this isn't this doesn't require $10,000 worth of expensive therapy. Um, a lot of stuff people can do by themselves. Like, for instance, like tapping, like making a list of your stressors, um, you know, under a framework, you know, that's easy to do um, and just eliminating, eliminating, deciding what you're going to keep, what you can change. And then if you've got a stressful society, like, for instance, what we have now, um, this is where you get into activism. Um, and, you know, <laughs> because people only uh, uh, form, uh, uh, go into revolutions because there's stress. A revolution is a stress response. And so, yeah, you can do this at all levels. So, so I, the key is, is identify the things first because a lot of people just don't even know what's going on. They, they haven't even connected on that level. And so you have to do that first. Perfect. Okay. And then identifying and then from after identification of your five, you know, of these in these categories, what do you do with that? Yes. Well, number one, okay. I, I, the one big, one big aspect of my book, I really want a lot of people to take home is the actual risk. Okay. And when I mean risk, like, okay, like for instance, people know that if they don't wear seatbelts, um, they're greatly increasing their risk. They know, you know, and there's numbers, you know, they know if they smoke, uh, there's a, you know, bajillion years of numbers that, you know, okay, well, this is your odds that you're going to die. This is the odds that you're going to have to pay for, you know, um, you know, like say stress related problems of the uh, lungs, you know, due to the stress of cigarette smoke, for instance. Um, but see with stress, you know, it's kind of, since no one's really sat down and, and, really explained how costly, I mean, we're talking stress at the probably very, very minimum, probably eats up minimum 10% of the global um, economic output. Okay, so if the global economic output's around 70 trillion a year, rough, you know, more or less, then we're looking probably minimum, I mean, this is just back of the envelope, um, calculations. If somebody wanted to really go through, sift through, you know, 100 years of literature and do a meta-analysis, um, you know, and go through, you know, the economic, political, sociological um, aspects of this and really put some hard um, uh, dollar numbers on there, it's probably going to be a lot more. But we're talking probably at least minimum 10%. So this is bankrupting families. And, if you know, so if you know that, like, what you're doing to yourself is going to cause 
um, poverty for your family, if it's going to cause disability, um, you know, if it if it's like, you know, having a sex without a condom. I mean, you know, that's very risky for a lot of people. Well, if we can kind of bring stress on the same level as those other types of risk, then um, and people are going to be a lot more open and their health providers are also going to be a lot more educated as well. A lot of it's just awareness. Uh, it's just awareness because we carry our stress like a badge of honor and, and there's nothing honorable about this. This is killing us. This is, this is destroying our society. Yes, I agree. And the fact that, you know, I mean, truthfully said, it's not a bad a badge of on, honor to suffer silently with it, right? It's, I think, being transparent, able to speak about it. You, you mentioned the word social capital. And really, I think that's a really well put, our social capital. And the, the value of society to our health positive, healthy, nurturing society. And it starts with us. It starts with transparency. It starts with um, self-care. It starts with filling our tank. And it starts with oxytocin building activities, generosity, kindness. Yes, yeah, exactly. Boy, you, you, you have got this. It's so simple, yet it's so complicated. But understand, and again, being here in Ecuador, boy, I tell you what, I, I, did, I don't think I knew actually what social capital was until I came down here. And I do what I can to um, integrate with the society. I speak Spanish. I've got many Ecuadorian friends. I live in an Ecuadorian neighborhood with an Ecuadorian landlord. Um, and so I, I really, like, they don't have the number of stress, the rate of, of stress-related illness that we do. Yet, on paper, they're much, much poorer on, uh, you know, when you're talking um, financial, um, you know, if you're talking like through a, you know, if you're talking just dollars and cents wise and understand. So looking into this, um, there have been books written on this and studies on this. We have lost, we, we used to be like the Ecuadorians, um, you know, 50, 75 years ago. We used to have a lot more um, um, social investment in social groups, political groups, um, in uh, religious groups, if you're into uh, religion. Um, you know, and just various, um, you know, back in the 50s, our grandfathers would hitchhike. You know, they'd come home from the war or late 40s and they could hitchhike all over the U.S. and nobody even thought anything about it. Well, I come down here to Ecuador and you see little old grandmothers with their grandchildren waiting for rides by the side of the road. There, there's a tremendous amount of trust. People People don't put up with the shenanigans that we have in the U.S. because that would disrupt society as a whole. You don't want a, a situation where women and children can't stand by the side of the road waiting for a bus, taxi, or uh, to hitchhike, you know, because this is how society works. And we've lost that. We've lost that in modernized society. And um, it's going to be a bear to rebuild, but it can be done. It's very plastic. It can be rebuilt. But we're probably going to have to – it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but it's definitely a very, very important aspect on keeping um, uh, public health in check. Yeah, no, I think that that's awesome. And I like just the terminology, social capital. So what, what can we, you know, things we can do to improve our social capital, creating community, like the saying, it takes a village to raise a child and um, cooperation and collaboration. And, and interesting that in Ecuador, how you're mentioning the cultural responses to be calm and level versus reactive and aggressive, which we're definitely seeing more on our media in the United States. And I think I've seen in the last 50 years now that I'm. Oh, oh well, I, I've gotten to where I can't even watch most American media. Um, you know, you have, you know, you'd say you're like on a real long bus ride. Well, you know, they'll put in some like fast and furious. And, you know, which is a super violent action, you know, kind of Quentin Tarantino-esque type of movie. And I, I find I can't even watch this stuff. And, and people in South America don't produce these kind of movies. It, it's basically an American phenomenon. The U.S. is the, basically the creator of 
the, the media and the media process and the science of media. And yeah, I mean, just the violence, I mean, you know, just compared to, you know, the laid back, you know, romantic, you know, usually aspect to, to, uh, to South American, Latin American media, mm-hmm. you know, very calm, tranquil, usually kind of a little bit boring. Uh, but yeah, we definitely, um, uh, have that. And, and it, it is, it's, um, it's definitely affecting us and we've really got to do something about this because we're going to really start seeing major population crisis. In fact, we already see it right now. And and it's coming down to our youth, our stressed out youth with lower heart rate, yes. variability, higher sympathetic nervous system responses, which creates that increased excitability and overreactions, et cetera. And this does tie into the human microbiome and you go into this beautifully in your book. And I, I know we are run, we have run out of time. So I am going to invite you back to Couch Talk so we can dig deeper this area of, of passionate research for me as well, personally and professionally as move forward. Absolutely. Reconnect, right? Reconnect with their own, at their cellular level, as you've highly illustrated, at a cellular response in our entire body systems, not just our nervous system, but improving our neuroplasticity and healing from um, PTSD, as well as protecting the consequences of PTSD and also recognizing it in others and being able to help them, right? Part of our social capital, being able to give back with the knowledge that we've attained, like, like you've done in this awesome book and, and how you've created a lifestyle. You've made a lifestyle choice. You left America and went to Ecuador yes. to live yes. in a peaceful situation for your nervous system. And here you yes. are back so that we can benefit no matter where we are in the world. And I honor you for that. And I thank you, Mary, for being on our show today. Thank you very much. And uh, please direct your listeners to my website, marywingo.com. They can pick up a copy of my book there on Amazon. And I also do uh, coaching for anybody that needs, and I'm very, very limited on my schedule, but if anybody needs coaching or consulting in order to kind of get their head around this, just, just drop me a line. Let me see what I can do for you. Perfect. All right, y'all. So visit marywingo.com, marywingo.com, and pick up her book. I think this is really a very vital read. And, and especially, you know, people who are going through grief, you know, people who have suffered trauma, job loss, economic changes. This is a gifting book, too. So I want to encourage all of you to um, post your comments on iTunes, where our podcast is, and leave a review, and also on our my Couch Talk page at drannacabecca.com and visit Dr. Mary Wingo at marywingo.com and get this book, y'all. And really, let's have more of this conversation in future Couch Talks too. So I thank you all for listening today. Again, Mary, thank you so much for joining us from Ecuador. Oh, I look forward to coming back, Anna. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you all. Bye-bye.